welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 18, Genesis 18. And when I say it's a joy to be together, I mean, I don't take that lightly after this morning. It was, uh, it was an interesting morning. I mean, before I even got to church, I was, I was walking down, you know, I have plenty of time as I get ready in the morning to come and, and look over my notes and I come down and there's like a bathtub in my, uh, on my uh, scullery floor because a, a leak had formed last night. And so, uh, yeah, Kelsey and I had a lot of fun with that this morning. And then we get to church, and as uh, Tony already said, it was, it was lots of more fun and games here as well when we got here. But it is a joy to be together as the family of God, as this local church. I, I don't take it for granted. Um, next week, Kelsey is not going to be here. She's flying back to the U.S. to go be with her family as her grandmother is about to pass away. And so I was even thinking, I was like, man, like, going to be two weeks before my wife gets to be back in church with me. I'm just like, so we, we do not take it for granted. It is a, it is a joy to be here together as a family. Uh, but moving on to Genesis 18, previously we've seen um, that nothing is too difficult or too wonderful for the Lord. That's what um, my dad preached on a couple weeks ago. The emphasis is that God is able to do anything He desires to do. That's what we've seen so far in Genesis 18 with the prophecy about um, Sarah having a son. Whether God is giving a 90-year-old woman the ability to conceive, or if God is giving a virgin the ability to conceive the Son of God, either way, God is able to do anything He desires to do. He is able. He is powerful. In Genesis 18, we've seen how God and two angels appear to Abraham in a physical form resembling men. We read in Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2, we read this, And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And as we'll later find out, this is the Lord and two angels with Him. And so this is what we, we heard about last time. We, we saw how Abraham welcomes and feeds these three distinguished guests. And God reveals that He is going to give Sarah a son. I mean, there must have been something about these guests that really distinguished them as honorable people because there's not many people alive in, Abraham, in, this, in this story that are more honorable than Abraham. I mean, he is this kingly priest, and he is also approaching a hundred years old, but he jumps up and he welcomes them as these distinguished guests. So there's something about these, these um, apparently these men that even he recognizes. But when, but when the Lord um, reveals to Abram outside the tent, reveals that Sarah is going to have a son. Sarah's inside the tent listening, and she laughs within the tent to herself. She's kind of laughing to herself in her own heart and in her own thoughts when she overhears these words. But God confronts her. She didn't laugh loudly. I don't even think Abraham could have heard it. But God confronts her for her thoughts of unbelief. And by doing so, he reveals that God, the Lord, is even able to hear and see a person's heart. In the, in the first verses of Genesis 18, God has just reminded Abraham and Sarah and every believer who would follow that God knows all things, even the intentions of the heart, and God is able to do anything. God knows all things and he is able to do anything now, in the next scene, so that was last time we were in Genesis. Now, in the next scene, we will see whether or not the all-knowing and all-powerful God is also perfectly just in His judgments. I mean, He knows all things and He's able to do anything, but is He also just? 
as we think about this, let's read Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33 together. It says, Then the men set, set out from there. He's talking about the three distinguished guests. They set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abram went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, it's almost like the Lord was speaking to the other, other men, the, the angels, or he was speaking to himself. But then verse 20, the Lord speaks and says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abram still stood before the Lord. So the two other messengers go on their way, but the Lord stays with Abraham. Verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to, to help us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this local gathering of believers. Thank you that we are not solo pilgrims fighting the, the battles and the temptations of this, of this life all on our own. I thank you that we have God-given encouragement from the church. And I thank you that you've given us a ministry to one another in the local church. It's not just a place where we come and just take and take or receive, receive. But it's a place where we come and encourage one another to, to strive on in the faith, to, to believe that you are good, you are just, you are righteous, and you are faithful. Even on the days when we're beginning to forget, you have given us brothers and sisters who come and remind us, encourage us in the faith. Lord, I pray that as we approach this passage in Genesis 18, that you'll give us wisdom, that you'll soften our hearts. And Lord, if there are areas in our heart and in our life and our thinking where we are doubting your justice or doubting your faithfulness or doubting your power, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take this passage and that it would would cut deeply into our hearts and cut out the doubt of our heart. Would you do this for your glory and for the good of your people? Amen. So this section of scripture raises the question, is God just? Just could be defined as good or right. So to be just means that a person does what is good and right in their decisions and actions. So the question really is, are God's decisions and actions good and right? That's really what we're, we're, we're looking at this morning. 
We have to remember that the pagan gods of Canaan were not very concerned about being just toward their human followers. This just really wasn't a key thing they were known for, their, their, their pagan gods. Because in ancient religion, religions, the gods were more concerned about the relationships or the rivalries between the gods. That's really what they were more concerned about. And human beings were often nothing more than the victims of whatever was happening with their specific deities. You know, if there's, there's like destruction comes or plagues, it's like, oh, so-and-so's fighting or so-and-so's upset with so-and-so. And really, humans were just victims of whatever was going on in the heavens. But the God of Abraham was revealing himself to, as someone different. He was not like these gods. He was not like the demonic or the man-made deities Abraham was used to. Like, remember, he's coming from a pagan country in Ur. Instead, the God of Abraham is the, one, is the God who knows all things and is able to do all things. He is faithful to His promises. He hears and sees and is acting for the good of His people. This is what we've already seen in Genesis. And in this section of Scripture, we will see that God is just even in His judgment of the wicked. But before we get to that point, let's think for just a moment about something that Abraham doesn't seem to question. So it's not a clear question in this passage, but as, you read, as we read those first few verses, it's a question that today is something that comes up a lot in people's minds. Let's examine the question, is God just to choose whom He will bless? This question comes from, from verses 17 through 19. Let's read it together. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abram shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This isn't something that Abram's just doing. It's something that God is doing through Abraham. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is something the Lord is doing. Thinking back to Genesis 12, this is when God first called Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans. He seemingly, the Lord seemingly picks Abraham out from amongst the, the moon-worshipping pagans who live there just seem to just randomly pick Abraham. The Scriptures never give us any reason to think that Abraham was, a, was dutifully worshipping the, the God of heaven, the Creator God at that point when he was in Ur. Actually, the opposite is true. In John, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we find out that Abraham's father's served other gods. That's what Joshua said. He says, your fathers, and he lists Abraham's fathers, he says, they served other gods in Ur. Abram was the child of pagans and was most likely himself a pagan when God chose him and called him. Now in Genesis 18, the Lord is reflecting on his calling and choosing of Abraham but the human mind reading this statement, for I have chosen him, and when we realize it, it wasn't because Abram was such a great guy or because he was holy or because he was right, righteous. When the human mind reads this and thinks about this, it's so, we so often ask the question, is God just to choose whom he will bless? Is God really just? Is God just to bless one person with fame, wealth, children, but most importantly, a personal relationship with God while seemingly leaving other people to continue in their own pursuits, in their own vanity. Is God just to choose someone but not to do the same for the other person? Maybe this doesn't seem like a, a big deal at first glance. You may automatically think, of course, God is just to do whatever He wants to do. Maybe that's just your instant uh, reaction, and I think that is a good automatic reaction. 
But let me read a couple of verses of Scripture that often cause the human heart to shrink back and doubt the justice of God in how He chooses. This really, these verses really are a test to see if you really believe God is just to bless however He desires to bless. Romans, in Romans 9, verse 6 through 13, we're going we're gonna to look at this together. And if you would like to look at that, please feel free to turn with me there. Romans 9. In, in Romans 9, beginning in verse 6, we read this. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What he's saying here is that physical descent, like from Abraham, physical descent does not determine entrance into God's family. I mean, we really like this. This sounds right to us. After all, shouldn't entrance into God's family be based on merit, not birth? That's human logic, right? You shouldn't be, be just entered into God's family because you were born from certain parents. No, it should be based on marriage, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be based on the individual? Paul continues with his, his logic here, verse 9. Paul says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Here Paul is reminding us of what we've just learned about in Genesis, he's reminding us that Abraham presented his firstborn Ishmael to God as the child of promise. But God did not accept Ishmael even though he was the logical choice. He was the firstborn and he was physically descended from Abraham. Instead, God chose Isaac and made his promise of blessing to Isaac even before he was born. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 9. Now, we don't like this as much. You know, the human mind, when they hear this, is like, no, Ishmael's not going to be the one my promises and my blessings go to. No, it's going to be Isaac. Even though he's not the one that Abraham presented, I'm choosing Isaac before he's even born or had a chance to do right or, right or wrong. It sounds like God is doing all the choosing and that Isaac was just a recipient of God's blessing. Doesn't sound as good to us, but let's keep reading. Next, Paul continues with another example of choosing. So he's going to switch to another example. Verse 10. And not only so, so not just with Isaac, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So if you, rem if you remember going ahead of, you know, in our story now, we're now with Rebekah and Isaac. And Isaac conceives twins in her womb, Esau and Jacob. Verse 11. Though they, Esau and Jacob, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of this, verse 12, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. The older Esau, the older brother Esau, was not chosen or called. Instead, Jacob was chosen by God before he had done either good or bad. Here's the point God chose and gave the promise of blessing and relationship prior to the birth of Isaac and prior to the birth of Jacob. This proves that God is the one who chooses to have a relationship with His people. Mankind does not work their way into a relationship with God. It is God who chooses to make a relationship with His people. Is God just to choose this way? I mean, this is, this is exactly what Paul is arguing here, that it is God who chooses. He says, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. 
That's why anyone has a relationship with God. That's what Paul's <coughs> arguing. Is God just to choose this way? Is God just to pour out His great blessing on certain people while withholding it from others? Romans 9 tells us this is what God is doing in the world, choosing a people for His name, not because of works or bodily descent or because you or I deserve it, but only because of God who calls. That's the point. Paul anticipates the explosion of the human heart in protest to this idea in the very next verse. I mean, he can feel the heat as he's writing these words. And so in the very next verse, verse 14, he says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I mean, this is the human protests. Our hearts and our minds rise up in protests. The human heart responds to God's choosing with how could God be so unjust? How could He choose between two babies before they were even born? How could He decide to reach down and save some but not save all? How could God choose that? This is the natural condition of the human heart to charge the Creator of the universe with wrong simply because He does according to the purpose of His will with what He has made with His creation. Paul will go on to drive his point home, the point that God is just to choose and act according to His purposes. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is speaking to Moses, the leader of the Israelites, before they enter into the promised land. This is one of the clearest examples of God's choosing in the Bible because God chose Israel as His covenant people not because they were the most holy nation or because they were better than the people of Canaan or of Egypt, but simply because they were the people He chose to bless and to attach His relational presence to. This is clear throughout the entire Old Testament that Israel was not a holy, righteous people. Over and over, the scriptures say they were a stiff-necked people. And God plainly says, "Do when you come into the land of Canaan, do not say it was because of your righteousness. He says, it was not. He says, it was for the fame of my name. Because I chose you, I made you mine, and I will bring you into this land. That is why He gave them Canaan and brought them into that land. It was not because of their righteousness. Paul then gives another example of God's right to choose, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's saying to Pharaoh, I have raised you up and given you fame, wealth, power, influence, so that when I crush even you, when God crushes even Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, when God does that, then the greatness of God's name will be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God raised up Pharaoh. God did not crush Pharaoh and save Israel because one was better than the other. It's just simply not the case. That is made very clear. God blessed Israel simply because He chose them to be the people who would display the greatness of His name. Paul makes this obvious conclusion in verse 18. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the obvious implication he's making here is that God is just to do that, since he is the creator, and he has the right to do with his creation 
what he desires to do. He will go on to talk about the potter and the clay. Does he not have a right over the clay pot that he has made to do with it as he pleases? And so this is Paul's argument pointing back to to the Old Testament where we are studying right now. This all seems upside down to the human heart until we recognize and believe that God is the creator and the creator has the right to do as he pleases with what he has made. He is just to give and take away. Remember Job? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord either way. Either way, he is just. The Lord is just to show mercy or choose not to. He is just to call people to repentance or to leave them in their rebellion. It all depends on God. And thankfully, it does not depend on me or you. Because if God's actions were based entirely on my actions, if His choosing me was based on my actions, what I did in this life, then I would be burning in the lake of fire right now because my deeds have been filled with wickedness from my youth. The only reason I am alive today and filled with joy and hope Saved from condemnation and promised eternal life. The only reason that is true of me is because God chose me and called me according to the purpose of His will. Even my response of faith, which is what follows, even my response of faith is a gift, a good thing, a blessing that God chose to give me according to the purpose of according to His purpose, to gather a people for His name. That is His purpose right now. It's to gather a people for His name from every tribe, nation, language, language, and tongue so that they will forever be trophies of His grace in the new heavens and the new earth. That is His goal right now. And that is why He calls and chooses. And this, the reason why I am saved, this gift of faith that I received, And that this is all God's doing. This is true, not just of me, but of every child of God. It is God who calls. So we ask the question, is God just to choose whom He will bless? The scriptures repeatedly claim, yes. God is just to give as many good things as He desires to give to whomever He desires to give it. He is just to do that. We cannot fault God for His generosity, especially since we are all undeserving of any of it. None of us deserve anything from God, so how can we fault Him for His generosity? We've seen that God is just to choose whom He will bless, but let's also ask another question. Is God also just to punish and destroy the beings He created? Is God still good and right if He chooses to punish and destroy beings that have rebelled against Him? We know that the first human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and that they received the sentence of death along with all of their descendants. This means that the human race is under the condemnation or the judgment of death. That is how we come into this world, condemned to death. Human beings are living on borrowed time. God could have put Adam and Eve to death in the garden, snuffing out the human race before we even had a chance to get going. This would have been good, right, and just on God's part. First, we have to believe that. We have to come to that realization before any of the the rest of it makes any sense. Is that God would have been right to end Adam and Eve before we were ever alive. But God chose to extend borrowed time to Adam and Eve and every other human being who has ever lived. So now we are born rebels to God, condemned to eternal death. Yet, we find ourselves living for a short time on borrowed time we don't deserve. So the to- this life, this is borrowed time. This is borrowed time. This, this is how we are born. This is the, the natural human condition 
God does not owe us another minute of life. When I'm talking about the natural man who is without Christ. God would be good, right, and just to bring this world to an end right now and to put to death all rebellion, all rebels. Now looking back at Genesis 18, our passage, Abraham doesn't seem to question God's justice in destroying the wicked cities of Sodom. So that he doesn't even really question this. It seems even clear to him with the limited understanding of God that he had. Abraham knew the wickedness of Sodom and he knew that God was just to punish and destroy beings who have rebelled against their Creator. Abraham seemed to have a clear understanding of God as both merciful and gracious, so he he did understand that about God, but he also understood that God is the holy judge who brings swift destruction to the wicked. Later in, in Scripture, in the Pentateuch, when God revealed himself to Moses on Sinai, God describes himself this way. So when we're talking about he's, he's merciful and gracious, but he's also the holy judge who brings destruction. Well, God describes himself this way in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So this is the, these are the Lord's words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this passage really describes this like, man, how can we hold both of these in our hands at the same time? He's just saying he, he's steadfast love, faithfulness abounding. I mean, we love to hear about the, the steadfast love of the Lord and how he, he forgives sins. And when it says that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, most commentators believe he's talking about thousands of generations. He's not just talking about people like in this generation. He's talking about like he is so long-suffering that he will... He will wait for His people. He will call them repeatedly. But He is also the one who will not clear the guilty. By no means will He clear the guilty. So we love to hear about the mercy, grace, and steadfast love of God. But we have to realize, see in this passage that God describes Himself saying, I will by no means clear the guilty. He will never clear the guilty. That's what he's saying. Never. So how how you know it's like it's like if somebody wanted to attack scripture, they could take this one and be like, scripture is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It's laughable. How can these things be true? But this passage describes the justice of God. And the New Testament is the revelation of how God is perfectly just and keeps his promises and keeps that passage of scripture we just read the new testament is the revelation of the christ and so without getting into that yet this passage describes does describe the justice of god yes god rejoices to show mercy and to forgive sins but he will not sweep (coughs) under the rug he will not sweep any sin under the rug he will by no means clear the guilty every sin ever committed must be paid for with blood and pain. This passage reveals that God is just to put to death every being that has rebelled against Him because He is the holy judge who will never let sin go unpunished. Romans makes this very clear that every person deserves death. It says Romans says things like this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have failed to meet God's standard. And it says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the natural condition of the human heart. And Romans also says, the wages of sin, so failing to meet God's mark, the wages of sin is death. Like we heard all the way back in Genesis from Adam and Eve. Every human being rightly deserves death. 
and, and, and God is just to punish and destroy any and all rebellion. So we've seen that God is just to choose whom he will bless. And God is just to punish and destroy. But this doesn't seem to be the problem that Abraham points out in Genesis 18. So we've, we've been looking at some problems that the modern mind many times has with, with God and his justice and his right to choose what he will do in this earth. But this is not what Abraham points out. Let's look together um, at this passage. We're going to look, I think, beginning in verse 20. Because God reveals to Abraham that he is about to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if they deserve to be destroyed for their wickedness. This is where we pick up the story. Uh, verse 20, in, back in Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is a, a human way of describing how God sees and hears everything that happens on the earth. But interesting to note is that even the inhabitants of the earth are the ones crying out for vengeance against Sodom and Gomorrah. Human beings are the ones who are crying out to God to do something. And now God engages with Abraham and brings him into this event in human history so that Abraham and his descendants, so the people of God, God, God welcomes Abraham into what he's doing so that the people of God will understand the kindness of God, but also the severity of God. What we've been talking about this morning, this, his, his justice to choose to bless, but also his justice in punishing and destroying so he's welcoming Abraham into what he's doing so, he, so that God's people will understand the kindness of God, but also the severity of God. God's severity towards those who are in rebellion, but God's kindness to those he has chosen and called. Abraham is standing on the cliffs which overlook the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. And he sees the two angels begin to walk down to Sodom and he knows exactly what the angels are going to find when they get there. He knows exactly what is going on in these pagan, wicked cities. And at this point, Abram is surely thinking about his nephew, Lot, and Lot's family. If the angels go down to Sodom to destroy it, then Lot and Lot's family are going to die. You may, you have to, we have to remember that Lot previously lived with Abraham for many years, and when he was part of his household, and he really became like a son to Abraham. And, when, and even when Lot was taken captive by the kings of the east, remember I had that big you know, map up here, and I showed you how the kings came in, invaded the land, you know, that story. Even when these, these, these kingdoms invaded the land and captured Lot and were taking him away as a slave, Abraham raced across the entire land of Canaan and attacked these, this, this huge invasion force out of love for his nephew, Lot, and for Lot's family. Lot and his family are very dear to Abraham. That's why the next passage in Genesis 18 makes so much sense. Uh, verse, beginning in verse 22. So the men, the two angels, turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In summary, Abram, rather confidently, it's, it seems like in the way the passage is written, Abraham is saying that in his estimation, it would be wrong, unjust, for God to put Lot's righteous household to death with the wicked Sodomites. To kill Lot would not be just or justice. Before we go any further, we should clarify this definition of the word righteous. 
Because every time we hear that word, we tend to lean toward the idea of sinless perfection, or at least near sinless perfection. In fact, when we hear righteous, we tend to hear morally good, like like they're, they're good people. They're really good people. They're deserving of God's blessings. Really what, what we think when we hear the word righteous, at least. But with all the scriptures in front of us, we know that no human being is morally good in God's sight. That's really one of the, the primary things a person must begin to grasp before they can be saved from eternal destruction, is that they are not good and that they need a Savior. And so that's what the scriptures reveal to us is that no human being is morally good in God's sight. None of us can boast of near sinless perfection, not even for a single day. It is unlikely that this is the way that, uh, the way that Abraham is using the word righteous. Instead, Abraham is most likely thinking of people like himself who believe in the true God and attempt to keep His laws. They attempt to do justice and to show mercy. So this is he's really talking about the followers of God, God's people, or those that God has chosen. So Abram is most likely saying, far be it from you to put your followers to death with the wicked, with those who are in rebellion. That's what, what Abram is saying would be unjust. And with this sentiment, Abraham throws out the somewhat random number of 50 persons, thinking it an impressive enough number to prove his point and avert God's wrath. He's like, surely God, you know, like, this is an impressive number, 50 people. Interestingly, God, in our passage, God does not challenge Abraham's logic or clarify Abraham's definition of righteousness or list the terrible, gross offenses of the Sodomites. God doesn't do that to like, to like justify his actions or his judgment. Instead, God reveals his kindness towards all those whom he has chosen to be his people. And God responds this way, verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I think Abraham must have been a little surprised by God's willingness to spare Sodom. God's kindness here is incredible. God was willing to allow hundreds, if not thousands, of Sodomites to continue polluting his world and persecuting people for the sake of only 50 followers of God. This is where Abraham comes back to God Greatly humbled, I think, by God's kindness, but also concerned that his earlier estimation was a bit too optimistic. I mean, he starts to think, really, could anyone really expect to find 50 righteous or 50 God-fearing people in Sodom? This is what's probably happening with Abraham. He's like, whoa, it sounded good in my mind before I said it, but now that I said it and God said yes, it's like maybe I was a bit too ambitious. 50 is a lot of of God-fearing people. And the remainder of the chapter is Abraham returning to the Lord again and again, asking him, pleading with him for greater kindness, ending finally with God saying he would spare the entire region. So it's not just one city, it's the cities of the plain would be spared if God found only ten righteous people in the city of Sodom. God's kindness in this exchange is incredible, especially when you remember he is the holy, righteous, pure, sinless judge of the universe who will never let the guilty go free. We'll look at what happens to Sodom another time, but for now, let's simply ask the question, would God have been just, or is God just, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, which is what Abraham was, was, really, was really pushing back about. Is God just to put the righteous to death with the wicked? And we're, we're, almost, we're almost finished, so please hang with me. If you define the righteous the way that Abraham seems to define it, where a righteous person is someone who trusts in God and attempts to live for God, then the answer would be yes. God is just, even if he puts the righteous to death with the wicked. 
The scriptures make that very clear. God is just even if he chooses to put the righteous to death with the wicked. This is in fact what has happened throughout history. Think about righteous Jonathan, Saul's son. He is prince of Israel, the next in line to be king, but he is killed in battle because of his father's sins. It wasn't because of Jonathan's sins. Jonathan was righteous as far as this description. He was the friend of David. He would have elevated David to be king if, even if he was alive. But he was put to death for the sins of his father. Think about righteous Uriah. This is Bathsheba's husband. Uriah was killed because of David's sins. And even David's baby died because of David's sins. I mean, it doesn't get much more like we're talking about somebody who's innocent or their slate is clean. We're talking about a baby. The baby died because of David's sin. Think about the Black Plague in Europe or World War I and II, or 9-11 when the two towers in New York collapsed, or when a tsunami killed 20,000 people on the coasts of Japan. There is no reason to believe that God's followers were spared physical death from these catastrophes, which God planned to permit. God was not surprised by any of these things. God planned to permit these, and we, have, we should not think, oh, well, even though we don't know, God spared all, all the Christians in Japan. He, somehow they had a you know, Holy Spirit notification and they all fled to inland. That just is just not the case. And there are many faithful churches in Japan. Yes, God delights to show His kindness towards His chosen ones. We know this clearly throughout the Scripture. God, God delights to show His kindness towards those who come to Him by faith. But this is ultimately displayed. God's kindness is ultimately displayed by God saving us from eternal destruction and death. And, give, and, and through giving us eternal life with Him. That is what many of these Old Testament stories are pointing to. It's not pointing to health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. It's talking to the eternal salvation of God's people from eternal death. Jesus told his followers in the world, you will have tribulation. This is the prophetic word of the Son of God. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's talking about the eternal deliverance. Not, you will have money in your pockets and you will never have health problems. No, eternal deliverance. We are not promised health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. We are promised suffering, followed by, so we are promised the suffering in this life, but it, we are promised that it will be followed by imagination-defying joy when the glory of the Father and the Son is revealed to us in eternity. That is our hope. Not that we won't get swept up in some terrible disaster in George. I mean, like a year ago in November, we all thought we were going to get carried away by the flood that came through George. But that is not our hope. Our hope is that we will be forever saved and will be in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Yes, God is just even if He puts His followers to death in this life with the wicked because we belong to Him and our life is not our own. Our only desire is to glorify Him whether by our life or by our death and to be found faithful when He comes. In closing, we must realize, though, that the, the Scriptures oftentimes define the word righteous differently. What, what if we define the word righteous as morally acceptable in God's sight, or as morally good, as the Bible many times uses this word? Would God be just to put a morally perfect person to death with the wicked? What if someone had never sinned? Would God be just to put them to death with the wicked? As we look through the scriptures, we have to admit this, that this has only ever happened once. God the Father put Jesus Christ to death between two thieves on the cross. The two criminals were being put to death for their wickedness. I mean, the, the criminal hanging there on the cross said, We are rightly judged. 
fear God for this man is not being rightly judged. That's what he said on the cross, the, the thief. But Jesus, the righteous one, was put to death as an innocent one between two wicked sinners. Far be it from God to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be, be it from God that God should do such a thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Those were Abraham's words. How can God be just if he puts the righteous one to death with the wicked? God is just to put Jesus Christ to death because Jesus Christ is God made flesh. And as God, he may choose to lay down his own life for the salvation of his people. Praise be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for putting the righteous to death with the wicked. For permitting the righteous one to fare as the wicked. Praise be to God for that. The judge of all the earth has done what is good and right. His kindness has exploded the human imagination. He has become more glorious and kind than Abraham could have ever imagined because Yahweh came down to this earth and was put to death for our wickedness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story in Genesis 18. I thank you for how many things it can teach us about prayer, about coming to you, about your kindness. And I also thank you for how it's going to show us in chapter 19 about your severity towards those in rebellion. Lord, would you conform our hearts and our minds, our thinking, our logic? Would you conform that? Would you bring us in line and in step with your truth? Our hearts are so quick to go astray. Sometimes we're even quick to, to, to make a judgment and say that God is unjust for something that has happened in this world. Yet, Lord, I, I pray that we would search out the Scriptures and that the Scriptures would, would inform our hearts so that we would praise you no matter what comes, whether it be life or death or suffering or persecution, that we would praise you because you are kind and good and you are just to pour out your severity on all rebellion. You are just. Lord, would you align our hearts to that? And I pray that you'd bless uh, all who are here. Lord, may no one leave today uh, still believing that they are a good person or believing that they deserve God's kindness. But may all here realize the great gift it is to be your, your children and to have your kindness poured out on us in abundance. We love you. Amen. Amen.